Well, no, I'm I'm going to be growing mushrooms, um, but not not illegal mushrooms. Ones for eating. Yeah. Yeah. Portobello. Um, the other ones. Button. <laughs> Button and others. <laughs> Jack Heathcote's Mushroom Emporium. <laughs> we have two, three, three kinds. <laughs> they might be the same. I don't know. <laughs> They're different sizes. Yeah. You can have big ones. You can have small ones. Some are more wet than others. <laughs> Pick your own. Not that one. I'm struggling to have anything on this. <laughs> Pulling my mind out. That's how little I know about mushrooms. Uh, Come and visit me at my mushroom emporium. I'm a fun guy. <laughs> <laughs> Little mushroom joke for you there. Oh, you've got I cut. have others. If this is the star, I curse you. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... So... This story starts in the city of Newport in Wales mm. in the late 19th century. Because Newport... Home of the Dirty Sanchez. <laughs> was it the home of Dirty Sanchez? I'm sure they were in Newport. It's south, isn't it? Newport? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. All the big cities in Wales are on the south coast. Newport, Swansea, Cardiff. Because Newport in the late 19th century was a powerhouse of industry. The booming coal production in the South Wales Valleys had led to rapid development of a town that had started the century with a 1,000 residents and had ended it with over 79,000. Shit. It also had the largest masonry-built dock in the entire world, the Alexandra South Dock. Mm. Complete, because if you've got a large dock, you need a large lock. And their lock was the largest lock in the world. <laughs> At a thousand feet long and a hundred feet wide. This is like common knowledge, isn't it? No, it's just a fucking big lock. Oh, so if you told people you're from Newport, they wouldn't immediately think, home of the lock? No, I think the the people of Newport probably know that they have the largest brick-built dock in the world. The excavation of the largest masonry-built dock in the world... Uh, had also had the added bonus of leading to the discovery of a Viking longboat 12 feet below the mud of the River Usk. This discovery is not to be confused with the discovery of a medieval ship in Newport in 2002 during the excavation for the new Riverfront Arts Centre, as this ship was clearly built in the 15th century and was built in Spain. Yawn. So basically, if you go to Newport and you ever need to do any kind of excavation work, you're likely to find a historical ship of some description. When did they find the Viking one? Uh, they found that it would be um, mid-1800s. Uh, so what, is it hand? Are they excavating by hand? Have they got steam-powered um, I, I diggers? Don't know. I, I'm guessing the vast majority of it was done by hand. Yeah. Just... They're just digging down, digging down, digging down. Doom. That's 78,000 that of the residents. <laughs> <laughs> the other thousand just... were feeding them. <laughs> the other thousand were the originals who were yeah. still sort of doing arable farming. Just yeah. like, what, what are you all happening? doing here? What the? <laughs> Why do we still only have one working toilet? Yeah. What is going on? Please build more schools. You're scaring my sheep. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they, whenever you put a spade in the ground in Newport, you're bound to hit a historic ship of some description. That's the takeaway from this. They found two, Joe. Yeah, that's... I mean, I know, but it's more than one. Lesson three. Mm. It's a thinker. It is. It's a deeply philosophical <laughs> kind of 
cul-de-sac, let's say, that we've just wandered into. The Alexander Dock is located in the parish of... Now, I want to get this right. Pilgwenly. The parish of Pilgwenly, which is known to the people of Newport simply as Pill. Yeah. And it was in this epicentre of shipping that a boy was born in 1896. Pierce Blackborough was the son of a ship steward, which sounds like quite an important role, but is it actually a mix of waiter and housekeeping staff? Which I will accept is genuinely quite an essential job on a ship, but probably meant quite a lot of people would have to die before he was in the running to become captain. Right. So if someone says they're a ship steward, they're not that high on the pecking order. But now everybody's waiting to be captain. If I was on a ship, it's like... three, yeah. Maybe th- two or three rungs down in the hierarchy. Like. Oh, so first mate, second mate. Yeah. Bosun. Yeah. yeah, the guy mopping the decks, not like... like well, yeah. if everybody else dies, <laughs> but who will I celebrate my new captaincy with? It's me and you, rat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The... Ship shape! <laughs> You'll become an able seaman. Yeah, hands the mop over. <laughs> Just drops it on the rat. Yeah, killing it. Oh, no! My only... Gone. Crew member. <laughs> Running around as a child in pill... Pierce Blackborough watched the ships sailing daily from the port on his doorstep and probably imagined himself enjoying a life of adventure on the high seas. And he had a Welsh hero to look up to in the figure of Arctic explorer Edgar Evans. Edgar was born in Rossilli, further along the south coast of Wales, in 1876, 20 years before Pierce. And like Pierce, his father had worked on ships. Mm. He had enlisted in the Royal Navy as soon as he was able in search of adventure and in 1899 was stationed on the HMS Majestic, where he met a man called Robert Falcon Scott, who had mentioned to Evans that he wanted to be the first man to reach the South Pole. Evans became friends with Scott and accompanied him on his first Antarctic expedition in 1901. A decade later, Scott also asked Evans to accompany him on this Terra Nova expedition to beat the Norwegian Roald Admundsen to the South Pole. Oh, we know him. <clears throat> yes, because he was also involved in the Franklin expedition. Yeah, yeah. He was the one who found the North Passage. It was West the Terror. Passage. I remember the Terror. Yeah. Yeah. The was Erebus it? and the Terror. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was the one who uh, found the Northwest Passage and then skied, skied across to, a continent yeah, to, tell to tell people before turning around <laughs> and skiing back to the ship. <laughs> I got this one too. Oh, God. Bye. He had the most beautiful legs. <laughs> he had the strongest <laughs> yeah. legs. He had the most Norwegian of legs. Yeah. That's what he had. They're always in good shape. You know when you imagine a Norwegian man? Mm. He's tall, blonde. That's Swedish, surely. Norwegian is tall and dark hair. Oh, is it? I I, I imagine that's the main difference between a Norwegian and a Swedish hair colour. I was thinking like fair, fair, maybe like fair brown. Oh, chestnut brown. But it's been caught by the sun, so it's sort of had bleached tips. <laughs> <laughs> there he is on his skis. Yeah. Ah, oh, beautiful. Well, anyway... It, at this point, he hadn't quite reached the South Pole and Scott was determined to beat him. And he was like, I took Evans last time we went down there. He's a good sort. I'll ask Evans if he fancies swinging by again. Evans wasn't in as good shape the second round, time round. Uh, in fact, he was described at the time as a huge bull-necked figure, a beefy womanizer who was running <laughs> a bit to fat. Those three descriptions are the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so... So it basically goes, he's fat, fat, fat. He's fat, fat, fat. He's a fatty, fat, fatty. 
who also likes the women's. Yeah. So, of course, he'd agree to go Beefy somewhere. Beefy bald neck. Not bald neck. Bald neck. <laughs> bald neck. So, it seems amazing that he would agree to go to the only continent where there wasn't a single woman present. Yeah. The only continent on Earth where he would not encounter a female. But he did. And he was also one of the four men Scott chose to accompany him. Oh, did he go back, Evans? Yeah, yeah, he went back with Scott. <laughs> He's just thinking, right, I need to lose his way. <laughs> Quick. Well, not, not only did he make it as part of the expedition, he was chosen as one of the final four to accompany Scott on his final fateful push to the South Pole in January of 1912. He's looking ahead. He's seen how other expeditions have ended. Mm. And thought, right, we need... <laughs> We need a guy who's got timber. Yeah, we, need... we need rations in human form. Yeah. We need someone who's stored fat like a camel for the past 10 yeah. years. But we can use yeah. both for food and, and lighting. <laughs> <laughs> Evan sustained a large cut to his hand even before the five men reached the South Pole on the 17th of January. Where they found a letter from Abmanson. In the, the cut. No, at the North, at the oh, South right. Pole. They found a letter that Admonson had written, but it wasn't to them. It was to the Prince of Norway with an accompanying letter asking that Scott post it when he found the time, which, as far as I'm concerned, is top-tier shithousery. It's just... So, like, explain that. So, Admonson reached the pole first. Yeah. And he put up a Norwegian flag. And at the base of the flag, he left a letter to the Prince of Norway yeah. to sort of say, uh, you know, I did this in your honour. But rather than just bring that back and send it to the Prince of Norway, he left it with a note on top asking Scott, who he knew was going to arrive within days, if he wouldn't mind posting the letter. Oh, he's gloating. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. <clears throat> yeah, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a bit too busy with the parades and yeah. all the glory, so you can probably find time to post a letter, and he can't posted you, Scotty it, boy? <laughs> Did he post it? You don't Obligingly. Know, you don't know how the Scott expedition ended. Oh, did he die? Oh, of course. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, he walked off into the snow, didn't he? Wasn't that the no, thing? no, no? That wasn't that wasn't Scott. Who's that? We, we'll get to it. Don't worry. There's too many of these crazy right. men. So, Evans, Scott, and the other three guys. Yeah, they turn around dejected, but at least they've reached the South Pole. Now they had to get back to the rest of the team before you know Antarctic winter set in. Wouldn't you just take up the flag the Norwegians put? No. Put your own flag there. No, this was... This Tear was the letter the... up. Come home. Yeah, we'd be first. Now, this was, you know, there'd be telegraphs that had been sent back and telegrams. Yeah, they right. did, they've managed to get the word out. Uh, unfortunately for Evans, on the way back, he found that the wound on his hand was refusing to heal. And as the group ran into difficulty on the return journey, it was clear that Edgar Evans was in the worst physical shape of anyone in the party, with frostbite attacking his fingers, nose and cheeks. Yeah, yeah. As they descended the Beardmore Glacier, as only those with the most beard can hope to conquer it. See, Evans has gone to the South Pole to get in shape. Yeah, when he should have got in shape and then gone to the South yeah. Pole. And now he's coming back. <laughs> Still fat. <laughs> well, with... fat, frostbitten, and with a gaping <laughs> hand wound. But while they were descending the Beardmore Glacier, Evans fell into a crevasse and sustained a concussion. The group had to slow their journey to try and carry their injured colleague. Oh, God, he's such a weight. But Evans finally collapsed on February 16th. You just roll him, don't you? Well, the decision was made to leave him behind and make it to the next supply depot before returning for Evans. They did return. (laughs) Okay, wait here. But it was clear that Evans was not going to make it much longer. He was reported when they 
finally got back to him to be wild-eyed and barely conscious. Who's still alive? Who's still alive on his knees? Jesus. So they walked off, and this is hours they left him on his own. So they they walked out of view, and he was just kneeling in a frozen white hellscape, mm. whipped by the wind, frostbitten, concussed. Uh, and they came back. He he was barely conscious by that point. He was brought to the makeshift camp at the supply depot, but died the same night. None of the recovered records from the Terra Nova expedition say what happened to his body, and it may be that it still lies somewhere near the foot of Beardmore Glacier, preserved in the permafrost. Assuming, of course, that Scott was above the idea of secret cannibalism as a means of survival. The other four men struggled on until Captain Oates went outside, and I may be some time, on the 16th of March. Down to three men, the expedition lasted until the 29th of March, an agonising 12 miles from the next supply depot before they, they found that they couldn't physically go on any further. Shit. So they were they were fully aware of how close they were to the next set of supplies, but they just, their bodies gave out. News of the deaths did not reach British shores until February 1913, which means that young Pierce Blackborough may not have known about the death of his hero before he had set sail for adventure himself at the tender age of 17. I forgot we were doing about Pierce. Mm. With no experience, Pierce took whatever work he could find, and he ended up on a ship called the Golden Gate, where he met a very amiable American from Joliet, Illinois, called William Lincoln Bakewell. Bakewell had come to the nautical life at the age of 27, a good decade older than Pierce. He had already held down such stereotypical American jobs as logger, (laughs) rail worker, Um, miner, um, and ranch hand right. in Montana. <laughs> it's just like stereotypical American jobs yeah. in the Victorian era. Yep. All of them. He just had a tick list. He's like, yeah. dip, dip. and now I'm off to sea. <laughs> the two had struck up a friendship. And when the Golden Gate founded, which I didn't know what founded means. So I looked it up. It means filling with water and then sinking. So rather than just sinking, it slowly fills up with water and then sinks. Right. It's nice that they have a specific word for slow sinking. Don't all boats do that? Well, I guess it, I guess it's about the degree of time. So if a boat sort of limps on for another two days, it's foundered. Whereas if a boat just hits something and then Titanic's, oh, okay. that's sinking. Right, yeah. But it didn't sink in the worst place in the world because it sank in the Rio de la Plata, which forms the border between Uruguay and Argentina. Yeah, <laughs> uh, um, It forms the border between Uruguay and Argentina. The two friends... Bakewell, Blackborough. Yeah. Bakewell and Blackborough. They decided to stick together and head south to look for a new ship to get a job on. So they were like, friends. Yeah. We've, we've, we want to stick together. We, we come as a package deal now. Yeah. South means they ended up in Argentina, which makes sense as the Welsh had been settling in Patagonia uh, as early as 1865. So it's possible that um, Pierce would have come across native Welsh speakers. Yeah. As he travelled south into Argentina. And they arrived in Buenos Aires. Do you like how I said that? Not really. Oh. In October nineteen fourteen. <laughs> I, li- I didn't like how you licked your lips afterwards. Buenos Aires. <laughs> they arrived in Buenos Aires in October nineteen fourteen. Looking around the docks, they happened across a little ship called the Endurance, which was going to head to the Antarctic under the commander of a famous explorer called Ernest Shackleton. Mm. After the pole had been claimed, Shackleton was looking to complete the first crossing of the Antarctic continent, which was arguably an even more impressive feat. Despite his advert for crew stating, 
And this is the quote from the advert. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness. Safe return doubtful. Honour and recognition in event of success. He had received 5,000 applications. That's beautiful, isn't it? And he'd whittled this down to a crack crew of 57. This included two surgeons, proving that the advert was only semi-joking about the hardships that they have to... And we've got a ship's doctor. Make that two. Yeah. We definitely need two. Maybe three. No, no. Three's two. Two's fine. It's the sweet spot. We'll have two. Despite what must have been an apprentice-style selection process to get the original crew members, Blackborough and Bakewell decided to turn up unsolicited and ask for jobs on the endurance. Yeah, if you don't ask, you don't get. Yeah, they get it. Well, they said yes. <laughs> and this was probably because a couple of the original crew, called Irving and Barr, had been forced to leave following an altercation whilst on a stopover on Madeira, resulting in Irving taking a sword cut to his head and Barr having a plant pot smashed directly in his face. <laughs> so I have no idea what happened on Madeira. You know, they're, they're, they've only barely left England. They're off the coast of Portugal here. So they're like five days into the journey. So go on, just we're taking on supplies. You've got three hours and they come back bleeding heavily from face wounds. Like, what have you done? <laughs> Being chased by locals. <laughs> One angry guy missing a plant pot. <laughs> you know, they're running towards it like, let us on the ship, let us on the ship. And they just pull the gangplank up and shake like their heads. Oliver is 15 years old. Just love the idea they're just pulling the gangplank away and just shaking their heads, just stood there like, no, no, you stay here now. <laughs> no! We've already replaced you. <laughs> so they'd lost two crew members. So you could say it was fortuitous that two new crew members just happened to turn up in Argentina. They said yes to Bakewell, who obviously had actual experience on ships. And it also didn't hurt that he pretended to be Canadian rather than American. Yeah. It's like, I'm kind of British. Yeah. I'm like you guys. He was taken on as an able seaman. Black Barrow, though, having only served on one ship to this point, was laughed at and told to come back when he was an actual adult. Oh, do you have a little boy frame as well? Mm. Is he, like, gangly? And... He, uh, looking at pictures of him, he Has wasn't... grown into <clears> his face yet? He wasn't the biggest guy, no. no. He was still... He was still that weird thing where you're both gangly and have puppy fat. Yeah. It's like... Yeah. <laughs> Of, no shoulders. <laughs> yeah, you're kind of dumpy thin. Yeah. But Bakewell, he didn't want to get all cold without his young dumpy friend. And he convinced another sailor, another sailor called Walter Howe, to help him smuggle Pierce on board the Endurance as a stowaway. He convinced Howe by saying that they were still one man short in terms of numbers and that they weren't likely to find a better looking chap at their last stopover in South Georgia before the expedition properly began. Yeah, global. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> They're going to figure out that he's on there. Well, I don't... Because think... there's only, what, f 60 members? Well, no, the, the original crew, there were going to be two um, groups. So there was the endurance with the group that were actually going to cross, and the second lot went round the other side, and they were laying supplies. Is this the people <coughs> that thought them, they were looking for the... They thought there was a crossing, but they thought there was an Arctic Sea? No, that was north... They thought there was a, a sea around the North Pole. That was years before. Right. That once you got through the ice at the North, there'd be a polar sea that you could sail in. What they were doing is they got this crew of 57 people. They split them in half. Half went on the Endurance to sail to one side of the Antarctic, just past South Georgia, and they were going to walk. And once they got to halfway, the other team was supposed to have laid supply depots 
So they would drag enough food and supplies to get halfway and then they'd start following the supply depots to make the rest of the way. Right. So there were actually two. So isn't the other team just doing it all? Well, they were only going to go halfway. Basically, they were the support team. Right. But the Endurance was the main event and that's the one that Pierce decided to stow away on. So there's like 28 people. He's going So how can you hide in 28 faces? Well... You can't. No, but the but he's plan... Not, he's the 17, plan, he's not The plan ahead. wasn't to hide for very long. The plan was to hide to the point where it became less of a ball ache to have him there <laughs> than <laughs> it was to turn out. around and go back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the Endurance left Buenos Aires on October 26th, 1914, with young Pierce Blackborrow stuffed into a small locker full of clothes. He stayed hidden in the tiny space for three whole days before he was discovered. His two co-conspirators had snuck in food and water, but... <laughs> I have no idea what he did when he needed to use the toilet. I don't know if he was just pissing on the clothes. Whose clothes were they? These were um, sort of, they they had the sort of winter clothes all stored away, ready. So (laughs) the chances are they wouldn't have opened those again for a good couple of months. Like, oh, it's musty. And oh, there's something growing in it. (laughs) Is that corn? (laughs) (laughs) Who left corn cobs? The clothes. Pierce was immediately taken to see Ernest Shackleton. And as a result, he had not quite gotten over the pins and needles in his legs and had to sit on a chair when he met the great explorer for the first time. Shackleton was not best pleased. In fact, he was very angry indeed. He launched a verbal assault on Pierce that was so violent that both Bakewell and Howe came forward to defend him, which appeared to have been the point because once he had found out the other people involved in getting Pierce onto the endurance... Ernest began speaking in a much calmer manner. Right. So he just wanted to know who'd, who'd been involved in it. He informed Pierce that he would have to stay on board now, as Ernest had no intention of turning back, but added ominously, You're going to you... be the ship bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Not too far from that. Yeah. Here's your dress. <laughs> You're my <laughs> living foot warmer slash stool. Put on your lipstick and into the corner. No, he said, Do you know that on these expeditions we often get very hungry? And if there is a stowaway available, he is the first to be eaten. No. Pierce didn't really take that seriously and, elated that he was going to be allowed to stay, decided to risk offering a comeback. He looked Ernest dead in the eyes and replied, They get a lot more meat off you, sir. So he basically called the captain fat. Yeah. Which I think's yeah. There's a lot of fat shaming in this episode. Well, it's a very manly scenario, yeah, isn't it? <laughs> We're all boys on the boat together. Ha ha! You rumpy tumpy. I just want to grab those fat folds and jiggle them, and maybe yeah, it's, it's shoving and then it's, it's tickling and then it's little suggestive strokes. See, see, see if you're getting the response you want. <laughs> yeah. Ernest laughed at this playful joke, knowing he will be eaten. Hmm. <laughs> And probably made a comment about young Pierce having a lot of balls before he sent him off to see the cook. They just keep feeding him butter from now on. <laughs> Sage. Well, he sent him off to see the cook because Pierce was going to be working as a ship steward. <laughs> just like his dad. <laughs> Earning three pounds a month. Fucking hell. It just reminds me of that bit, you know, in uh, Futurama, where he, in the first episode, where he does so much because he doesn't want to be a delivery boy. Yeah. And then he ends up, I'm on this rocket ship. It's going to be a new life. I'm a delivery boy. 
All that because he didn't want to just become a ship steward like yeah, his yeah. dad. I'm a ship steward. Oh Crushing your soup, sir. <laughs> yeah. And he's he's not even he's like a assistant to <laughs> <laughs> assistant to the ship steward. Yeah, yeah. Technically speaking, he was ranked below the cat. In, in South Georgia, the whalers informed Shackleton that the ice was unusually bad that year, reaching further north than any of them could remember. They suggested that the endurance wait a little further into the summer season, before heading south to their destination of Vassell Bay, where they would begin the overland expedition. They waited until the 5th of December before setting off, and got within 80 miles, or one single day of good sailing, of their destination by mid-January having had several false starts due to the ever-shifting ice flows. So it's like, instead of making a direct course, you've got to navigate the channels of open water to try and circuitously get to the yeah, the yeah, land a, that you want to get to. It's a giant maze of nonsense. Yeah. However, the ship then became stuck in pack ice on January 20th. On the 24th, they saw a lane of open water less than 100 metres ahead of them. But even with the engines going full steam and the st- sails set the endurance could not be forced forward. So it was a very special boat, the yeah. endurance. It had been designed specifically, even though it was wooden, to be an icebreaker because the guy who'd commissioned it originally, had his plan had been to take people north to the Arctic um, to hunt polar bears. Why is it wooden? Because it's wooden. I, d- I don't know what to tell you. It was a wooden ship. With they, engines? With engines and sails. Makes no sense to me. Well, that's what it was. Well, wasn't the one that Thingy died on? Oh, God, what was his name? We did it. The Erebus and the Terror. Yeah. Yeah, they, they had... Um... They weren't wooden ships. No, they weren't. So why is this one wooden? Because it was designed to be... It wasn't designed to break through pack ice so much as it was designed to go to the Arctic so that people could pay to hunt polar bears. Right. But amazingly, the polar bear hunting tourism trade didn't take off and the guy was left with this ship that was designed to... with you know, withstand freezing temperatures and scrapes with ice. And Ernest Shackleton was looking for a ship to get him to the coast of Antarctica. Right, okay. So the two things kind of dovetail quite nicely for him. It's like, you've got a ship you don't want. And for anything other than going to either the North or South Pole, it's pretty much useless. And I really want to try and get as close to the South Pole as possible. So I'll take it off your hands. So yeah, even even with... The sails full tilt, even with the engines running, they couldn't get to this lane of open water that was tantalisingly close. The crew, including Pierce, took to the ice with pickaxes, crowbars and chisels to try and force their way into the passage. So they were literally stood in front of this boat that was trying to go full clip, just desperately smashing at the ice. Uh, But it didn't work. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't work, and by the end of the month, the temperature was dropping, and the crew had to accept that they were frozen in until the next summer season. The shifting of the ice dragged the endurance slowly northwards and away from the Antarctic continent, and the men prepared themselves for the seven months of winter that lay ahead of them. Blackborrow became a bit of a special project for Ernest Shackleton, who decided that, as he had nothing better to do for seven months, Pierce may as well be given an education. So, while the other men were free to amuse themselves however they wished with Arctic football matches, Antarctic football matches even. Uh, they raced the dog sled teams. They're having uh, a good time. Yeah, they're having a great time. They hunted penguins, you know, and seals. They... So they've got enough rations to... Yeah, oh, they're, they're well set for rations. There's no worry of starvation. They've... It's basically how are they going to fill the hours. 
But while they're doing all these fun things, uh, Pia spent the long Antarctic winter in the darkest, coldest school on the face of the planet, being expected to demonstrate his learning directly to Shackleton on a daily basis. <laughs> so he's gone for adventure. He's ended up at school. <laughs> but not just school. School in freezing temperatures and darkness. Yeah. Surrounded by 27 smelly men and dogs. <laughs> Yay! With a shit job. <laughs> yeah, and when he's not schooling, he's serving them all tea. Yeah, because the rest of them can't sail. The surgeons are, you know, mm. but from slips and falls. Yeah, there's yeah, nothing. It, they all need to eat. <laughs> nothing changes for him. Most of the crew, Black Barrow included, thought they were simply going to wait until October when it all should thaw, and then sail back to South Georgia. However, Shackleton had gathered together the captain and his second-in-command as early as July 13th to make it clear that he felt the ship would never reach clear water again. Unfortunately, he was proved right, as throughout August the pressure of the moving ice began to buckle the beams of the Endurance. The men began packing down supplies in case they needed to abandon the ship. It was now a question of if the ice would thaw faster than the pressure of it moving about would sink them. September passed with nervous anxiety, and the men tried to ignore the ominous creaking and cracking as best they could. By October, the temperature was increasing, and there was hope that they would soon be underway again. Until, almost a year to the day since they left Buenos Aires, another wave of pressure tore a hole in the endurance at the stern post, which is the bit right at the back of the ship where the rudders normally set. The men fought to try and pump the water out of the ship, but it was a losing battle. And after three sleepless days struggling in icy water, the crew had to accept that they could not save the endurance. The order to abandon ship was given at 5pm on October 27th, and the supplies were shifted to the three lifeboats that had been lowered onto the ice floes. They spent the first night camping in tents less than 100 yards from the sinking endurance. Shackleton came up with a plan to march around 200 miles to Robertson Island, where he hoped he would encounter the whaling fleets and rescue. Each man was given a set of winter clothes, a pound of tobacco, and was allowed to carry two pounds of personal possessions. After shooting the ship's cat and a couple of puppies, the crew set out dragging two of the lifeboats full of supplies, along with seven dog-sled teams, in a northwest direction. It's worth noting that in all the confusion, Pierce Blackborough had pulled on the wrong pair of boots. It's the one one who was pooping in (laughs) during his stowaway. (laughs) As a result of the damage that the um, you know the fungus and various things growing on the fecal matter, um, they were not quite as waterproof as the ones that everyone else was wearing. Oh God! They struggled along at a rate of less than a mile a day for three days before it was decided to pitch camp and await the breakup. Of the Only one hundred and ninety-seven days more, yeah. lads. Well, this is the thing. You're doing well. Get up, George. He decided, do you know what? Because it was backbreaking. It wasn't like they just weren't trying very hard. It was so hard to even move like a quarter of quarter of a mile a day that they were finishing. Yeah, it's not like ice exhausted. skating. It's it's yeah, it's all broken, jagged, it's jagged, raised. But they had to make a decision, and part of the plan was that once they got to the edge of the ice floes, they'd have to sail it. And um, what's his face? The the ship's carpenter. After a couple of days, he was looking at the lifeboats and he was like, look, Shackleton, if we continue dragging these, by the time we get to open water, they're not going to be fit for open water. So you can either wait for the ice to thaw, you know, you can either wait for the open water to come to us, or we can continue with your stupid plan and hope that we never reach open water. 
and we're rescued before we have to try and sail in these boats. Yeah. So Shackleton decided, okay, we'll have to stop. Because to be fair, at the rate they were going, it would have taken them just over a year to reach Robertson Island. Yeah. And while they had plenty of supplies, they probably didn't have the amount of supplies needed to drag that amount of weight for a year. And the dogs. Yeah. Poor bloody dogs. Instead, they stayed on the ice floe in a makeshift camp until the end of December 1915, during which time they had fortuitously managed to drift further north. However, supplies were starting to nudge lower, and as the thawing ice began to leave more clear expanses of water, it was decided that they would set out to begin the sail back to civilization on the 23rd. So they celebrated Christmas early on the 22nd of December, mm-hmm. which is the day we're recording this episode. Oh, my God. (gasps) Wheels within wheels. They managed to get a further eight miles before having to stop and admit they would have to wait a bit longer. So, yeah, they after making a big deal of we shall celebrate Christmas early because before you know it, we'll be back at civilization. They got eight eight days further across the ice floe and went, no, we've got to stop again. (laughs) So they celebrated by killing all of the dogs in the sled teams because they they weren't going to risk dragging the boats any further. And if they weren't dragging things across the ice, the dogs were... Food and well, not to be fed. Yes, they yeah. they were uh, drains on resources. Eaters of meat. Yeah, they killed all the dogs in the sled teams, making a rudimentary jerky from them, which the crew referred to as dog pemmican. Oh, that's so sad. With no animals left and food becoming increasingly scarce, Pierce probably started feeling a bit more uncomfortable about the hold. Stow away is the first to get eaten yeah. joke. So, <laughs> oh God, it's happening! Oh no, he's trying to forage. <laughs> now we can eat. <laughs> the shitting nothing. Looking out to the landscape, we could have. Oh, go on then. <laughs> they were still waiting for the ice to break up well into February. By which time, Pierce's tent, tent number five, had had the ground sheet removed to make a sail, leaving his leaky boots to take on more ice-cold water every time he got out of his sleeping bag. Oh my god, and his sleeping bag soaked. Because there were only five tents, and of course, Pierce was in tent number five. (laughs) And of course, tent number five was the one they were cannibalising for a sail. It's like, you know when you've been placed in tent number five, you were not part of the A-team of this crew. (laughs) In tent one, we'll have the captain, we'll have Ernest Shackleton, we'll have the surgeons and the botanist. In number two, we'll have the, I don't know, the you know the main crew members, we'll have the ship's um, carpenter. Before the massacre, tent number five used to be dog tent. <laughs> no, they, kept, they didn't keep them in tents, they made dog loos. They, they literally really? had igloos around, when, when they first got packed into ice. God, there's so much work involved. They built igloos for the dogs around the endurance. So there are pictures that show, you know, when they still thought they were going to be able to get the endurance out, of just these little igloos around the edge where all the dogs slept. That's sweet. Isn't it? They also, because they, murdered them all. they had pigs when they set out for fresh meat, they also had pig loose. <laughs> yeah. God, they must have been some hairy pigs. They're not little pink pigs, are they? <laughs> they were not. They were, they were hardy boars. Yeah. But by this point, they'd been made into bacon, chops and everything else and been eaten. Yeah. You know, we've, we've got no more pig. The pigs are just a memory at this stage. Yeah. The, the, I mean, the, the dogs are becoming a memory. 
Despite the pack ice not breaking up through March and into April, the crew had at least been steadily drifting north until Elephant Island came into view. It was true land, and Shackleton decided that it was now or never. The boats were finally launched. Considering, you know, the Endurance had sunk the previous October, they'd been living on the ice, just waiting for a chance to launch these boats. Since October, it was now April. And they finally did launch them at 1pm on April 9th, 1915. So April, the Southern Hemisphere, mm. it's pitch black. Oh, well, no, it's not It's not pitch we're not, black. We're not into the, you know, endless winter. We're getting there, that's the problem. Endless nights. What you'd have called the Arctic summer, uh, the Antarctic summer, it's kind of already been and is going. So they're in a real dire straits here. Blackborough was ordered into the least seaworthy boat. Of the three. 2.5. And as a result, spent most of the treacherous seven-day voyage stood at times knee-deep in ice-cold water as the crew struggled to navigate the shifting ice. This ensured that the frostbite that had been slowly developing in his feet was supercharged. The third boat was, I mean, all they did was bail. They didn't sleep in the third boat. Other people were able to snatch bits, except for Shackleton himself, because apparently he stayed at the tiller for like the entire week of the main boat. And when they saw that um, Blackborough's boat was floundering, they threw them a line and they were literally sort of, you know, dragging them along, <laughs> just trying to keep everyone together. It You can say a lot about Ernest Shackleton and his preparation and some of his decision-making, but at the end of it, he was desperately devoted to getting every single member of that crew back to civilization. They were like, you know, his boys, and as soon as he even Blackborrow, because he's, he's invested too much time. In yeah, yeah. Oh, he loved Blackborrow. Yeah. And actually, to show how much he loved him, finally on April fifteenth, they reached Elephant Island after four hundred ninety-seven days, either at sea or on ice. Shackleton took the helm of Blackborrow's boat to sail it through a channel and onto a beach before he announced that Blackborrow himself would have the honour of being the first man to set foot upon Elephant Island. He's got no foot left has he well yeah when Blackborrow didn't immediately jump at the offer Shackleton helped him by lifting him over the side and dropping him Blackborough... the first person to set knees on Elephant well, Island Blackborrow's frostbitten feet immediately gave way and he was left sitting in the ice cold shallows <laughs> just looking all dopey well no to be fair he immediately he's, sort... he's internally he's warm from like the courtesy and encouragement oh, yeah. <laughs> He thinks I'm worthy. Yeah. But no, he, he saw the funny side and he shouted up. He the... looks like, um, have you ever seen that footage of uh, Vince McMahon when he tears both his quads? Oh, of course he's I've sitting seen in that the ring. at the Royal He kind of looks like that. Yeah. But unlike Vince McMahon, he wasn't screaming. He just shouted up that he was actually the first man to sit on Elephant Island. Yeah, yeah. And everyone went, ha ha ha, that's jolly japes. <laughs> well done you. You've got to keep, I mean... Being able to make jokes after nearly 500 days. I mean, he doesn't realise that he'll never walk again. Won't, won't he? Maybe on pegs. <laughs> the men set up camp. Peggy Pierce. In the cove. Yeah. But it was clear that the frequent gales and freezing rain meant that any stay on Elephant Island would be an uncomfortable one. Because although on the ice flows, it was very cold. It was... How do I put this? It was a dry cold. Yeah. It didn't rain... It was just constantly cold. But now that they've gone far enough north that rain can happen again, it's actually worse in a way because the rain's getting into everything. It's the coldest rain it can be. 
Yeah. <laughs> they've gone just north enough that they've made the situation worse is what's happened. Yeah. But at least they're on land. And apparently for the first like couple of hours, they were all a bit shell-shocked and they were doing things like just picking up stones and rubbing them on the faces like, oh, oh, stones, I remember you. And they were just sort of like digging their hands into the mud and like, oh yeah, just looking at rocks. <laughs> you would though. Yeah, being absolutely spellbound by, look, yeah. look at all of these things. I remember you, you beautiful bastards. Is there any vegetation on this? I imagine it's very scrubby, if Is anything. It, yeah. There's not going to be like a beautiful... And there, lo and behold, was an apple orchard <laughs> in full bloom. <laughs> so wondrous. Uh, the men set up their camp, yeah. But, you know, they thought it was salvation. When they spied it from the ice floe, they're like, look, an island, it'll be everything we need. It'll be, we can set up a fire, it'll be warm and cosy. And they got there and it's just like, they're in a little cove up against a cliff wall and there's just a constant gale blowing directly <laughs> in their faces. And there's nowhere else on the island they can go. They're stuck on this little cove with just wind blowing directly at them at all times. So Blackborough was probably a bit perturbed to hear the new plans Shackleton had for rescuing the party. He was going to try and sail the most seaworthy boat 800 miles across open ocean to South Georgia oh my God. in order to get help from the whaling boats. That's how far they are away from it now. Mm. How far had they travelled to get to the thing? So all this ice flow movement and... Yeah, so basically... The further away than when they... They, they drifted... They sailed south east and they managed to get a little bit northwest again, but they were still 800 miles from where they'd started when they'd left South Georgia. Oh my god, is it anything worse? So, you've spent you just spent near 500 days, yeah, and you've you've got nowhere, and it's like, right, okay, we're 10% there, let's rally. <laughs> Things are going well, we're at least we're what... 10% there, and we have 5% of the food left. But don't worry, because I'm sure this next 90% is going to go super quick. So, yeah, Shackleton's like, our only hope, lads, is if one of the boats goes to try and get to South Georgia and we'll bring a rescue ship. That's fine. Of course, there's only one boat was making the trip. Uh, that required that most of the crew stay on Elephant Island in the wind and rain. And at the very best, if everything went perfectly, they have to wait a couple of months. With severe frostbite and practically no sailing skills, Blackborough was, of course, left behind. He watched as Shackleton and five others sailed off on the 25th of April, hoping that eventually someone would come and rescue the remaining 22 men. Due to the conditions being suboptimal, Blackborough's frostbite did not improve. Yeah, it doesn't tend to, does it? In fact, it got worse and he started to develop gangrene. And by the 15th of June, the ship's surgeon, one of the ship's surgeons, Alexander Macklin, decided that they needed to amputate the toes on his left foot to give young Pierce any chance of survival. Would you feel that? What? Amputation? You know, when you've got frostbite, all your nerves are dead, aren't they? All your peripheral nerves are dead. There's a good chance that, because the, the constant pain you feel from frostbite is that there's still nerve endings there that are just screaming. You know... Your capillaries shut down at the tips, but there's probably still some functionality in the in the core of the toe. <laughs> if that's a thing, core of the toe. You know, like how when an apple starts to rot, it rots around the outside first. Yeah, but the inside there's probably some good flesh if you were yeah, bothered. It's fresh. Yeah, it, imagine that only with toes. Okay. Yeah, lovely toes. Oh. Using chloroform as anaesthesia, Macklin removed all of the toes on the left foot. 
the procedure, because it was being done in not the best conditions, you know, they'd literally just had to kick a load of people out of one of the tents, lay him on the dirty ground and go, right, sniff this rag, let's get going. <laughs> um, it took nearly an hour. However, the surgeon did note that when Blackborough came to, he was cheerful as anything and began joking directly. This lad. How <laughs> he, old is he? He's only like 19. He'll be 20 by this point. Oh. <laughs> He's like, way, all right, lads. <laughs> oh, you can call me Hopalong. Christ. But I, I wonder if it was this. He's 20 with 15 digits. I need, if on some bit he was like, I need to be as human as possible. I can't let them start to see me as potential meat. Yeah. <laughs> so I need to be the most amiable understanding sympathetic person that i can possibly be i have to be the life and soul of the party so when people go we're gonna have to eat someone everyone go it can't be blackborough he's got his whole life ahead of him eat me i'm old while trying to subtly (laughs) get across that you don't taste very well very good (laughs) no blackborough i I feel like you'd be rather bitter (laughs) Well, you don't know how far the gangrene's got in me. Do you really want to eat spoiled meat? I mean, we've chopped the toes off. It may have already set in. He'd literally put a hole in his own boots. (laughs) To spoil himself. Oh, do you want to eat that, really? It's gone slimy. The skin's just sloughing off now. It's gross. As June turned to July and August was beginning to come close, the men on Elephant Island began preparations to send another party out in one of the two remaining boats. Blackborrow, again, was not chosen for this expedition. Oh, so he getting, was he yeah. was looking down the, the barrel of another six or seven men are going to leave and he's going to be one of the last few people in with the last boat that barely made it to Elephant Island. So they, once that second boat goes, that's it. that's it, you're done. Either someone comes back or you are being eaten yeah. at some point. However, the second boat was never launched. As on August 30th, a small tugboat was spotted on the horizon. They've come back. Against all odds, Shackleton had reached South Georgia and had returned to rescue the crew. And the book that I pulled the research from, it it has a full section on what the six guys on that boat went through to get to South Georgia. And the fact that they managed it is just like... Did all six of them survive? Oh, yeah. Everyone survived. Oh my god, it wasn't one fatality. No one's whole... died to this point at all. <clears throat> so despite the fact that they've spent over a year in the worst conditions. Well we're thinking Blackborough's in bad shape. <clears throat> um He was definitely the worst of the crew. Yeah, but they're not in a good shape. No. Someone else had a massive bum ulcer. That was like <laughs> they were like the size of a melon. They had to keep just piercing it and draining it. So I guess he was off the menu as well. Do you want rum steak? <laughs> <laughs> Every now and then, you just this smell as they pierced it, just like that sickly sweet smell yeah. of rotting flesh, just oh. as it spills out. <laughs> you know he's been put in tent five. Yeah, this is mayhem. <laughs> oh, Pete, you've leaked again. Get into tent five. <laughs> no, please, no. It's time. <laughs> this ain't getting better. But I'm a tent three kind of guy. <laughs> oh, I'm in middle of the road. You mate. Yeah. No. Yeah. You've changed in a smelly, <laughs> smelly way. Yeah. But yeah, he'd come back. It, and it's like the the margins on the ship. It's like they reached um, South Georgia, but they reached it at the wrong angle. So they just hit a section of coastline that was just like jagged rocks yeah. and high waves. And they're like, 
the ship was breaking up by this stage because it was designed to be a lifeboat. It was designed to, you know, maybe bob around for a couple of days and get picked up. It wasn't designed for two open ocean voyages. In my head, the boat looks like something you'd... <laughs> Botanic gardens or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Like you'd... A pleasure craft yeah, on, you've a, got that, on a lake. You've got this little wooden boat, a swan boat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you should, have seen, in... you should have seen Shackleton's legs after they pedloed it all that way. 800 miles pedlo. <laughs> yeah. Go, 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 lads! But they, they managed to get it round and they found a bay. And they literally, it was a case of, they got it into that bay and a storm blew up. And it was quite clear as they were looking over their shoulders that if they'd been a couple of hours yeah, be longer dead. titting about, they'd have just been smashed into those rocks. And then they were on the wrong side from the whaling station, so they had to walk clear across an island. And they were like mountains and stuff. And they were like, right, okay, this is it, do or die. And they, it was that point where they were about to fall over. And then a Norwegian whaler just caught them as they fell. And, oh, my dear sweet boy. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and they, did, they took them in, they washed them, they fed them, and they sort of heard the story. It took them a while to set off again. I will say that. How, how many days? Well, I think two is too many, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but yeah. You need a one day rest, at least. Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not going to begrudge them that evening. But I feel like a lot of the amenities they needed could have been on a boat as they were chugging back. But either way, do you know, to be After fair... After going them, through that whole thing, and you're like, oh, shit, we've got to go back. Well, that's the thing. At least they did come back. Yeah. The six guys, they did come back. Uh, Blackborough who'd been bed-bound for their entire four-month stay on Elephant Island, and by that I mean he'd been sat in a sogging wet sleeping bag for four months <laughs> because he couldn't walk. Um, he was carried out of the makeshift hut to see the rescue ship as it sat at anchor in the bay. What what witty thing did he say? I, I don't think he said it. I think right. he just cried I thought, I tears of sheer joy yeah. knowing he wouldn't be eaten. <laughs> It took barely an hour to get all the 22 men onto the rescue boat, which called the Yelcho. Yeah. Nice name. Yeah. Uh, and amazingly, as I've said, despite the two years of hardship, not a single member of the expedition had died, even Black Barrow. The least, least equipped Antarctic explorer there has ever been. Yeah. Black Barrow was not present to say a final farewell to Shackleton, as he was immediately taken to hospital in Punta Arias in Chile, where his good friend Bakewell stayed with him throughout his recuperation. Bakewell's been on it the whole time. I forgot Bakewell was there. Yeah, yeah, Bakewell. And you know the other thing? Bakewell wasn't in tent number five. Wasn't he? No. When when push came to shove, Bakewell was looking out for Bakewell. (laughs) Yeah, he's in tent two. Yeah, he was was working his way up. Um, But he did, after it was all said and done, and now we were back to happy times, he wanted to go back and check on his mate and he sat with um black borrow just to just to make sure that he was all right <clears throat> he then knowing that black borrow was going to recover returned to america never going to see again <laughs> in fact he moved to one of those states that has no coastline <laughs> nevada <laughs> he's just like i don't i don't want to ever experience cold again i'm going to the hottest place on earth i'm in death <laughs> valley. valley yeah Oh, it's glorious. <laughs> Just they're peeling with the sunburn. Yes! <laughs> I'm so warm. Is it opposite of frostbite? Yeah. Borrow returned to Wales, where he received a hero's welcome and a bronze polar medal. And a new wheelchair. Well, my question about that is, he got a bronze polar medal. What the... F- 
do you need to do to get gold? Is that not worthy of gold? Well, because he, he's gone back to tell the story, his yeah. version of it. I bet he was quite modest about his... Well, he has to be. He didn't yeah. actually do that much. Like, well, I was there and I served the tea and then we lost the boat. So I didn't have to serve the tea so much. And then and I stopped moving. <laughs> <laughs> that was more of a burden. <laughs> I was like a mascot. People enjoyed... <laughs> he was. Yeah. Because after they killed the ship's cat, he he basically replaced the, the cat, cat as yeah. like the ship's mascot. It's like, oh, yes, there's old Pierce in his sleeping bag. He's the human slug. Yeah. The human <laughs> slug from Wales with the chippy attitude. Here we go. He's always got a joke and a song. <laughs> it's always wet. Because that's one of the things, actually. When they abandoned ship, one of the things that was allowed above and beyond the £2 thing was uh, one of the guys had a banjo. <laughs> like Shackleton was like, no, we need the banjo for morale. <laughs> yeah. For morale. But he only knows three songs. It's like, morale. <laughs> and they'd all sit around and play the banjo. <laughs> it was like every night, the same three songs. And now bed. <laughs> Pierce playing his toes. <laughs> uh, they were made into dice. <laughs> Ugh. Dirty oh, dice. Dirty dice. Oh, they put one of the toes into a bottle of rum. <laughs> Kiss the toe. The lucky toe. Yep. He was not allowed to join the Royal Navy for the final years of World War One, despite trying, our Pierce, uh, due to his disability. So even though he had a, you know, a cast iron excuse for not getting involved because the first world war was just breaking out when they lost contract contact with the world and they assumed that it'd be over by the time they got back so imagine two years hiatus and you come back and you start reading newspapers and you're like how many have died it's still going on no one's moved you know because the front line's still yeah, essentially where it was just you know hundreds of thousands of people have died and I think it was Shackleton, he commented that the, um, was like, the only thing that seems to have changed is they've stopped calling it the death list and started referring to it as the fallen. Right. To try and sort of you know, gloss it over. The glorious dead. <laughs> Not casualties, it's fallen. Yeah. Um, so he had a, a perfect excuse to just nope out the last years. And he chose not to. He tried to apply to join the Royal Navy uh, any experiences on ships? He's like, a few. You wouldn't believe it. Mainly harrowing. <laughs> I also learned arithmetic lost and Latin. Yeah. Could he, so, so how did he, did he walk? So he's lost yeah, his yeah. toes. Well, once he was able to recuperate, he was able to walk. He, he didn't have the best balance, which was why he was not allowed in the Royal Navy. But he could walk, he could do most things. Uh, and although he was not allowed to join the Royal Navy, he was allowed to join the Merchant Navy. Right. And he went back out to sea uh, to help serve his country. Well, not his country. I mean, you know, it's the English. Yeah. I'm, I'm surprised. Of, knowing what I know about Welsh history, I'm surprised they ever give us the time of day. Yeah. I'm surprised they want to be affiliated with us in any way. It's like, <laughs> you bastards. He then, after the war ended, returned to Pill, <clears throat> working in the Alexandra docks and marrying a local girl called Kate Kearns. With whom he had six children. Yeah. Probably seeing that settled life in Pill. Yeah. But as a you know, as a seventeen year old he'd been like, I never want to settle down here. Oh, could you imagine living in your hometown your entire life? And now he's just like, Oh dear God, routine. <laughs> Glorious routine. Warmth, the fire. <laughs> People. Yeah. 
female people. <laughs> Glory. But you know, because he's such a joker and stuff, so he's this light-hearted guy. Mm. But every now and again, if you caught him alone... He'd just he's... be sat staring into the fire. Yeah, yeah. You can hear the the, the Arctic wind. <laughs> <laughs> he's doing that kind of crying where the tears just slowly roll down, but there's no sort of face emotion. Yeah, yeah, no emotion on the face. And you go, Pierce, are you okay? Yeah, yeah. Hey! <laughs> Desolation. Pierce died at the age of 53 after suffering chronic bronchitis and recurring heart problems, most probably a souvenir of his one and only adventure. Yeah. And um, a couple of years after this, uh, Ernest Shackleton himself was going to return to the Antarctic and he died of a massive heart attack. And they think, it again, it was brought on by the hardships he put himself through. Because while the crew had it hard, Shackleton wouldn't sleep. You know, he he wouldn't expect anyone to do more than he was doing, which meant that every time he was putting in the most effort. Yeah. And he basically, he was, I think he was in his 40s when he died, Shackleton. And it was just because he'd lived about 40 years of his yeah, life done. during those two years. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you... You really are writing checks your body cannot cash, and we are going to collect at some point. It'd be great if that's actually how life worked. You have a certain <laughs> amount of effort you can put in. Yeah, it's a no- you have this amount of years of experience, and you can stretch it out as long as you want. Or you can cram it all in. Yeah, you can cram yeah. it all in. Life is essentially a health bar, yeah. like an endurance bar, and you can watch it deplete. Like... Yeah. He lived it all hard. So that is the story of the most unfortunate stowaway that has probably ever existed. He took it on the chin, though, didn't he? did. Pierce Blackborough. And the source that I drew a lot of this information from was The Endurance, Shackleton's Legendary Expedition by Caroline Alexander, which provides, like I've said, I just picked out the bits that were directly pertinent to Pierce, but it, it provides much more context and detail. It's taken from the diaries of multiple officers on the ship, and it gives you little snippets into every single crew member, what they were doing. But the best bit of this book is the pictures because there was an Australian on the crew called Frank Hurley and he he was a photographer. He was documenting it. And when I say he was documenting it every stage, while they were with the Endurance, he had all of his proper equipment. He was taking these gorgeous black and white shots of everything, really moody stuff. While he got stuck in the pack ice, he was taking photos of the lives that they were living during the seven-month winter. And even after they had to abandon everything, he had a Kodak camera in his pocket and a couple of rolls of film, and he was taking pictures. So there are pictures of the camp on Whale uh, on Elephant Island. There are pictures of the ice camps. There are pictures of them boarding the boats. <laughs> I like, the, I like the, the thought that the rest of the crew, you know, they're doing all the hard work. Mm. The rest of the crew is going, is getting tiresome that he's not doing any work. And it's Shackleton going, he is working. <laughs> People must know the tale. But there, there would have been even more photos, but he was forced to leave quite a few yeah. at the first instance. But what there is, it, it's from start to finish. It's like the reason that... So can you see Piers? You can see there's pictures of Piers. There's pictures of Piers after he's had his feet amputated in his sleeping bag, lying at the front, because they do, he loved doing group shots. It was like no matter how harrowing it was, when they were on like ice flow camp number six and all hope was lost he was like right everybody out come on and then he's sort of like this lineup of everyone going smiling yeah thumbs up oh god we're all gonna die but you know that moment that i said that pierce jumped off the boat 
Mm-hmm. He was the first one off. Second one off was Frank, so that he could take a picture of everyone else getting off the boat. He's like, yeah, let's get this, you know. <laughs> Woo! The only thing we don't have is the... Um, a picture of Frank. <laughs> no, we do. Oh, do we? Yeah, there were pictures of him. There's a picture of him on one of the um, booms sticking out of the rigging with most of his camera equipment because he threw one of the Kodaks to one of the crew and said, when I'm up there trying to take this shot, can you take a picture of me? And he sat over this beam holding a massive off box camera. Yeah. Just like balancing. And if he drops, he's not dropping off and it's not like a... 30 foot drop into the sea it's a 30 foot drop onto pack ice so it's like could be the last picture of frank we yeah, ever yeah. see but yeah he, he got all of these photos and he got them back and he developed them and it the only thing he didn't get was that six man sailing across to south georgia because he wasn't chosen to be part of that because yeah, yeah. they decided in their wisdom they'd need a captain they need Ernest Shackleton. They need the most experienced members of the crew and the ship's carpenter, just in case anything needed fixing. And, like, and a surgeon. Yeah. Photographer? Hmm. Do we need a photographer for this <laughs> bit? No. <laughs> Sorry, Frank, you don't make the cut. It's like, no! I need to document. So that's the so only bit it, we don't did have. Did he document... The, the... the saving, everything. Oh, really? When they came back and... Some of the pictures... The pictures of... Because he liked to get up, like... Was that counted in his two pounds worth of personal equipment? He actually managed to talk Shackleton into letting him have an increased allowance so he could take more of the negatives with him. Right. Because he felt it was that important. He went on to um, do more Arctic expeditions and Antarctic expeditions as a photographer, and he even did some war reporting. He went on to become quite quite an accomplished photographer. Frank what? His name was Frank Hurley. And another thing, because you remember we did an episode on cats? Yeah, Unsinkable Sam. Yeah. And you remember I said that the the cat on <clears throat> the Endurance was called Mrs. Chippy, Very despite great. the fact it was a boy. Yeah. I found out why. Because its owner, Henry McNish, who was the ship's carpenter, was known as Mr. Chippy. Oh, so Mr. And was Mrs. always yeah. seen with, with the, cat. the cat. So it wasn't... Um, misgendering of a cat so much as it was a joke at the expense of Henry McNish. Yeah, chippy. Yeah, because the joke was that was the only wife he could get as he was quite a curmudgeon and Scottish. <laughs> so he had that dour Scottish ac- attitude mixed with a kind of disdain for the rest of the crew. So there you go. That is that is the end of my tale and all of the tales I shall tell you tonight. Sleep well, everyone. Don't have nightmares. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric, here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.